welcome back to season two of Outside of Session. I'm your host, licensed clinical social worker and therapist BFF, Julie Hilton. This season, I'm interviewing some incredible guests who also happen to be experts in their fields. Mental health, motherhood, spirituality, and so much more, I can't wait for their stories to be told. These are all the conversations I'm having outside of session. and welcome back to Outside of Session. I've got another two-part episode for you because once again, the conversation got rolling and it was just too good to cut off. And so I'm gonna end up splitting this into another double episode for you. This week and next week, we are going to be talking about narcissism and recovering from narcissistic abuse in childhood. And I learned so much from my guest. Her name is Pamela Madsen, and she's a licensed professional counselor. She's the owner and clinical director of Sea Change Psychotherapy in Buckhead. Pamela specializes in working with adult individuals and couples at the intersection where trauma meets eating disorders, substance abuse, or anxiety disorders. This often comes along with chronic health conditions, infertility, spiritual injuries, and relationship difficulties. Pamela says that her clients typically struggle with work-life balance and burnout, having complicated feelings about their family, having difficulty trusting others, and they long to finally understand their feelings. I have a feeling you're really going to enjoy this episode and that you're going to find ways to relate no matter where you are in life. So with all of that being said, help me welcome Pamela to Outside of Session. Pamela, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me, Julie. Yeah, this is going to be um, a topic, you know, I've done a a lot of different topics this season, and I'm really interested in this one because it's not one that I specialize in, and I'm excited to learn from you. So today we're going to be talking about narcissism and specifically recovering from narcissistic abuse of childhood, right? Yes. That is kind of your forte. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I wanted to start to say that I feel like narcissism is very much a buzzword right now. Like I see it um, on social media all the time. I have lots of clients asking me like my opinion on, do you think this person is a narcissist? Um, which I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Like on one hand, I'm glad maybe that there's some awareness and people are learning, but I also think that maybe we're overusing it a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I do. I, I, I think it's been becoming very popular and, and featured a lot on social media. And while I appreciate all of the awareness um, about emotional abuse, I think one of the difficulties that I see often is how um, weaponized the term has become in mm. in silencing people a lot of the times and um, e- even used by people with a lot of narcissism to silence uh, mm. the people they're perpetrating abuse against. So um, I think it's also important to know that all of us have narcissistic traits as a continuum. And so sometimes on like all of us on maybe like our worst moments might appear to be more narcissistic at times. Uh, But that's true of like any, any behavioral traits, we all have them. Mm -hmm. It just depends on, you know, if it's pervasive across all of your relationships and fields of life, that it's problematic to determine whether or not it needs like clinical attention. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad that you're saying that because we've, 
talked in a lot of different episodes about there's always a spectrum, right? And um, you can have qualities of or, t- or, or tendencies of, but that doesn't mean that you have a clinical diagnosis of something, even, even things like anxiety, right? Like we all experience anxiety. That doesn't mean that you have um, an anxiety disorder. And so what you're saying is that's true even with narcissistic traits. Yes, that is definitely true. And it's also more, you know, pervasive, like uh, at younger ages, right? We're specifically more self-centered as children and adolescents than we are as adults. Um, where it becomes problematic is where the additional component of emotional abuse um, is is added in. So narcissistic traits are fine um, to have, like, in, I guess, moderation. Everything in moderation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let's start by like, how do you define um, narcissistic traits, but also narcissistic abuse? Like in all of the work that you do, how do you summarize it? So, you know, narcissistic abuse, I guess a, a succinct definition would be emotional, psychological, financial, sexual, physical harm. Um, you know, can I mean include most often as emotional neglect, um, where you're in relationship with someone who challenges your reality, um, is, uses criticism, um, when communicating their needs to be met. Um, they use a lot of indirect communication that, uh, feels harmful, right? Um, you'll often see that person not understanding boundaries, physical or emotional, Mm. They will see people as an extension of themselves. Um, they aren't able to accept or tolerate criticism. Mm. Uh, they avoid accountability for their own decision-making or uh, want to avoid consequences of their actions. They'll make things your fault instead. Um, and so it, it's an incredibly invalidating relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like trying to write these down as you're saying them because that's such... <laughs> Those are such good points that you're making. So when you say indirect communication, what do you mean by that? Um, so I, I, I do couples therapy. So this one's probably okay. one of my very favorite examples and I use it all the time. Um, so, you know, so say like you want a date night um, with your, with your partner and say, um, you know, you never take me out anymore is one way you could ask for quality time together. The other way mm. you could ask is, um, I'd like a date night with you. And, um, you know, one of them really uh, opens up communications. So that would be the second one, by the way. The first <laughs> one doesn't really, doesn't really bring romance in, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it actually makes it almost seem, uh, uh, painful. It's it's like repelling. But the person yeah. who's asking for the time together, their need is actually that's a, a noble need. Like yeah. they're asking for a connection. They're just doing it in a way that coerces compliance. Yeah, that reminds me. I did an episode last season on manipulation in relationships mm-hmm. and how um, how we all manipulate. That it's mm-hmm. not always meant to harm, but sometimes manipulating just means trying to go about it a different way than being direct. And for a lot of people, directly asking for your needs to be met is so scary because maybe you've had someone who has invalidated your needs or purposely tried to withhold meeting that need of yours. So you learned along the way to ask indirectly. So that could be through things like the silent treatment, 
um, through using guilt, like trying to get guilt people into doing things for you. Like um, the person that says, oh, um, you never spend time with me anymore, that kind of thing. They're trying to use guilt to actually, like you said, get you to do something that is a valid need. I, I want to spend more time with you because I love you, but it's too hard to ask for it directly. Um, so that's what you're calling indirect communication as they're not just like getting to the point you're going about it in a unproductive way, really. Right. Um, I guess I, I've worked with a lot of individuals where I've seen um, a lot of narcissistic traits and some people that meet, you know, the, the personality disorder criteria. Um, and that's, you know, it's incredibly difficult to work with clinically, you know, mm-hmm. but um they are, they're still people. I think that's really important to remember here is that they're people, they hurt. Um, and, Absolutely. uh, us and it clinically we're, we're, we can't give up on them. Right. Um, but that also does not mean that like in a personal relationship, that's a different kind of role, like as a partner, or, um, or a child or colleague even, right? Um, that you don't have to stay in that relationship because that's a different role than the ones that we take on clinically. Like we're going to continue to care for them and, and try to support growth for them. They can grow and change. Um, it's just, it's longer work. Um, and, and one of the difficulties about that is their perception is that there's nothing wrong with them if they're just working really hard to get other people to comply to meet their needs. And since yeah. Um, they have a difficult time perceiving difficulties in themselves. There's not a lot of openings to uh, get in there as a counselor and help heal. So, do you think that that is a, a genuine um, like lack of aware, like self awareness, or is that like how would you describe that? Because because I think you're right. Like most of the time, it's hard to get people to to see that they need help and that their relationships could improve around them. Because like you said, like they don't really think that they're the problem, but do you think that that's genuine or is that purposeful manipulation? Um, Does that make sense? I, I, I yes, absolutely. Um, it, it, you know, it could either, it could be either one, but really what we know about narcissism is that root is this very fragile self-esteem, um, which I know does not make sense when you look at their behavior, right? Um, but what we're what we're seeing though is that person is so heavily protected by this internal guard um, that their perception is that they're always at risk of being exposed as inferior, um, and they use you know like bullying tactics to um, gain compliance. They want to be close to people. That's why they're trying to coerce you into coming to spend Thanksgiving dinner with them. Um, and you, <laughs> it, but the way they ask is so painful, right? Um, that's, it, it's just so sad to see people working actively against what their goals are. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're typically working with a partner, family member, um, like you're not, very often working with the person that is displaying these behaviors, right? It's like it's, it's normally the people in their life that are seeking out therapy, right? Yes. Typically they don't come in for counseling unless it's in couples therapy or maybe family therapy. Um, but, and, and I, I do see that from time to time, but in, in general, 
I work with the adult children of parents with these traits. Okay. Okay. So I would imagine that a lot of times people come in to see you and we always call it the presenting concern. It's, it's what the, the client identifies as this is what I'm struggling this. This is what I need help with. Um, and I don't think a lot of times people are coming down and sitting in your office for the first time and saying, hi, I have a narcissistic parent. Can you help me heal from it? Like, <laughs> I don't think that's normally <laughs> how it goes, right? What do you notice that people already have awareness of? And they, they come in saying, I want to work on this or I need help with this. Like, what do they already have awareness of? Um, well, so my clients, they come in most often and they'll say they aren't sure what's wrong with them. They can't seem to manage their professional stress. Um, they may have trouble making decisions. Um, mm-hmm. they struggle with perfectionism. Mm-hmm. They might also describe like a dependence on substances and, um, sometimes disordered eating behavior. Mm-hmm. They're very self-critical and they believe they need that criticism to continue being successful or to get things done. Um, I know you're familiar with also like the common description from clients with narcissistic abuse in their childhood, that the narrative is I had a pretty good, I had a pretty good family. We're really close. And then the next, when you ask about like specific childhood memories, they'll say next, I don't remember much of my childhood. Yeah. So that right there is a very discreet signal of emotional abuse and neglect. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I cannot tell you how many clients that, um, like in that initial assessment, they'll describe their family as close. Um, A lot of times they'll say, we were pretty, pretty normal family. I had a normal childhood. Um, but then when we really start digging in, it's like they've never been able to look through it through the lens of an adult and how painful things were. Is that what you see typically? Yes, that's that's certainly what I'm seeing. Um, you know, kind of the next step in working with the with these folks after, you know, they disclose like they come from a great close family, close knit. That one's really close the knit. common phrase. And then they don't remember their childhood. So I'll ask um the client to describe, you know, each of their parents in three words. Ooh. When you take the family unit relationship out of the equation mm-hmm. and you start to drill down into the relationship with the individual family members, you don't hear words that sound like closeness or connectedness at that mm-hmm. point. You might hear words that indicate close in proximity. So as in spending a lot of time together or on the phone a lot, oh, we text all day long, five times a day. <laughs> but the individual relationships they describe are more like you know, critical, opinionated, having a sense of being responsible for meeting their parents' expectations. They'll they'll describe them as draining. Um, I often see hesitation in answering that question in particular because they're going to be betraying the facade of having it all together in their family. There's a lot of shame experience when they deviate from that perfect family image. So, you know, people have admired their family for years and the loyalty binds of narcissistic trauma bonding are strong. I don't know that I've ever thought about that before. That's so interesting. Because I, I, I have had those clients before where they feel so much guilt when, when we really get in there and start exploring. And, and again, this is not something that I necessarily, well, I work a lot with um, CPTSD, so complex trauma. Um, and a lot of that probably comes from a narcissistic parent, right? And 
when they, when they start to share, there's so much guilt of they've kind of got their parent, their mom or whoever on a pedestal a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's been the family narrative is that she's, you know, this, the, the matriarch of the family and she's so, um, like involved in all of our lives and she said, you know, and so when they get in there and they start to describe, okay, well, what was painful about some of these childhood memories, there's a lot of guilt that comes with like admitting even to themselves that things were painful along the way. Yeah. It's well, it's part of their identity then has become um, that they came from a good loving family or a good family. Um, And, we often feel a lot of shame about not coming from a, a good family. Mm-hmm. And I think I like to challenge that one a little bit because good and bad are really judgments, but maybe we can, maybe as a, a community, we can start talking about like healthy versus a struggling family. Um, yeah. That especially like with the clients that I work with, they tend to, they're usually in like professionals um, where just because of where my practice is, they're so image focused that, that their work, they have to appear to have it all together too. Um, and ha- coming from a family where they experienced emotional abuse would, um, would be maybe challenging for them professionally. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, because, you know, a lot of times I think people think that people who have lived through this kind of emotional abuse, it makes you maybe fragile, but I think that it's almost the opposite. Like a lot of people that have experienced this kind of childhood, they have learned how to, it's like they have a unique set of skills that they've developed. They read people really, really well. Um, They can be incredibly in control of their emotions. So they can, they can kind of like flatline. Um, And a lot of those things are really valued in corporate America, right? Mm-hmm. you're used to looking like you have it all together because that was the the script that you had for your family growing up. And so when you go to work, you can like, you, you can deal with these really high stress careers because it's kind of just a continuation of childhood <laughs> in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. It was always high stress at home. Yeah. So, um, but it, but uh, you had to always, act like everything was fine. Um, because if you acted like things weren't fine, um, you know, that, that parent or parents, um, might up the ante in punishment. Right. Right. So that, that was, they become very, they become very skillful at taking care of the feelings of everyone around them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what you then see is there is an, over over focus externally on the moods of other people, other people's, even their physical sensations. So like, is my mom hungry? Is my mom thirsty? (laughs) Is my little brother hungry? Is my little brother thirsty? And they don't even like check in to see like, am I hungry? Do I need to eat? Have I slept? Do I feel like doing this, um, this activity that like I've been invited to, am I allowed to say no? Um, they don't even check in, um, yeah. with themselves about what's going on even inside their own body. They don't, they often can't even tell you what their emotions are. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm curious, once you start working with someone and you can help them become aware of how damaging this abuse was, right? And how, 
and help them put together, oh, maybe why they have some disordered eating patterns is related to this. Maybe why they're having difficulty in their relationships. Now, how do people usually respond to that when they realize so much of this is coming from childhood, if, if that wasn't even on their radar when they came in? Do you know, I often, I often get this. So once we, they might start to disclose a little bit once we talk about the individual relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've stopped repeating the very public narrative of we're a close-knit family because that doesn't describe, they don't then describe the closeness in the dyadic relationships with their parents. Um, so they, they then start to kind of, you know, handle very carefully. It's very fragile. Just on the outside, some of the experiences that they had, they'll describe, oh, well, that was maybe invalidating or that wasn't helpful when my mom or dad said that. The, they might start to acknowledge um, some things that happened that were unhelpful. Um, but again, go back to, um, well, that was then. It doesn't matter. I'm very much focused on the here and now. Like um, I, I need to figure out how I can... Um, n- not feel so self-conscious when I'm speaking in board meetings or, um, you know, I've already gotten over that. It doesn't matter. It's in the past, like, mm-hmm. and just really wanting to avoid even looking at and, and taking all of that apart. Right. What I see that most often. So sometimes we have to deal with like the here and now experiences of, okay, so let's work on, you know, managing your anxiety going into these public speaking events or, um, let's talk about um, getting you set up to meet with a dietitian if we're seeing disordered eating and um, then start to like unfold the relationship with the self. Um, a client self relationship, then you can, I mean, you can see going back to like just the very beginning when I talked about like the initial session is they can't trust themselves um, and they're really critical. So that truly fractured relationship with the, with their self. So we have to build self-compassion skills in the beginning um, and, Often in the beginning, I have to model some of that kind of language, saying things like, gosh, it makes sense that you feel really nervous going into this board meeting to speak. There's a lot riding on your shoulders. A lot of people are depending on you to keep the company in a healthy state. Um, there's a lot of families impacted by the, by the work that you're doing, the people that work for you and under you. And that may have been the first time in their entire life they've heard someone actually speak yeah. to what it's like for them. That's just such a reminder, right? That how powerful the work that we do can be, because like you said, like, yeah, sometimes this is the first time that, that it's even about them, right? Mm -hmm. Because I would imagine in these relationships, the, the narcissistic parent kind of, I mean, it's all about them, right? Like they kind of suck up the oxygen in the room and being in the therapy is the room where you can finally keep it just about them and their experience and help them even be aware of the heaviness of, of what's on their shoulders, right? Because that that probably is, again, like you're so worried about what's going on with everyone else and what their experience is. You don't really stop and take inventory of what's on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're so used to carrying the responsibility of other people's feelings. They've been training for that from birth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so if that's, one of the first steps is really building up that trust with self and becoming more aware of what your own feelings are and being, and and building that awareness of what your experiences have been. 
how do you naturally see it shift where maybe people become more comfortable with you after they have like a relationship with you of being able to, like, how do they get to the point of saying like, actually, yes, this was pretty damaging. Yeah. That can take a little while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it really can. Um, mostly because they really hold on to that. Uh, the loyalty binds there with the family. It's really hard for, um, for people to hold two truths together at the same time that seem to be opposing. So on one hand, you've got, um, I love my parents. Um, it seems in a lot of, and they'll often have made a lot of sacrifices, um, for, Mm -hmm. um, their kids growing up. So, you know, my, I love my parents and they, they did the best that they could. They, they did provide a lot of good things for me, college education, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, a lot of things were hard or unhealthy or not good for me. A lot of things didn't benefit me in, in a way that I needed. Like they weren't there emotionally, but they provided um, a lot of financial support. I hear that a lot. So helping the client become comfortable with the dialect of those two what seems like opposing beliefs, but they can be true at the same time. Hey everyone, I just wanted to pause for a quick moment to say thank you so much for all the love and support that you're showing outside of session. If you haven't already, do me a huge favor and hit the subscribe button, give me a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends. Help me take this show to another level. Now back to today's episode. Yeah, I would imagine too, there's a lot of um, fear with if, if I don't stick to this narrative of this good family, if I rock the boat at all, that it will be this massive blow up. Um, and, and I would imagine a lot of people are like, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not wanting to completely cut my parent off not trying to sever that relationship. Um, But the idea of rocking the boat at all or trying to make any kind of changes or, or find my voice or anything like that, that is so risky because I imagine that at some point in childhood, maybe you tried to push back a little bit and you learned very quickly not to do that maybe. Um, So I wonder if there's some of that, not necessarily black or white thinking, but kind of like either we stay status quo or I would have to just cut them off because there's no room for having conversations about boundaries or this hurts me or anything like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, so you're dealing with like, not just that first wave of grief when the, when the client recognizes, Oh, my childhood wasn't great. We weren't this close knit family. Like there's a, there were, was abuse going on that I didn't even realize at the time because it was the only normal I had. Um, so you have that first wave of grief. And then after that is what do I do now? How do I stay in these relationships? I don't have another family. Um, and you know, what, where do we go from here? What can we do moving forward? And you know, as clinicians, we don't typically advocate for cutting off relatives. Um, that doesn't always benefit the client. It's not always possible sometimes too. Um, so we start to talk about like what setting effective boundaries looks like and, um, 
deciding, you know, what boundaries are needed, where we can put them, what the needs are. There's like what we need, the roles we have with these people to look like. So, um, you know, a parent, in a parent-child relationship where there's narcissistic abuse, we often see role reversal where the child is taking care of the parent's feelings pretty frequently. And so, um, you know, working on giving the client permission (laughs) to stop doing that. Um, like a, a real recent example I have is from a, a uh, where a client um, was facing a possible layoff and she sh- shares the news with, um, you know, her parents and um, the parent starts to really emote and like, what are you going to do? I'm so like, I can't believe this is happening. You need to uh, <laughs> like, so all of those shame language, you need to um, start applying. I can't believe you'd let this happen. Mm-hmm. And then, the, you know, the, the person who's actually possibly going through the layoff is then compelled to take care of their parents' feelings, like, and encourage them, oh, it's going to be okay, mom. Um, you know, I, uh, I've got this, this, and that. And just I'm already taking care of their parents' feelings in that moment instead of what we really need from our parents in times like that is, um, gosh, I imagine this is really shaking you up. Like, what do you need from me? You're not alone in this. Um, you know, in in life, I've seen this happen several times. You have everything you need to navigate this and get on the other side. Um, your dad and I are standing by you. Um, like these are the things you need to hear in those situations, not, um, more panic and a a shift to take care of someone else. You know, as you're, as you're saying that, um, describing that situation, I would, I would immediately not think narcissism. I would immediately think emotional immaturity. And maybe there's, there's probably a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. Like I would see it as emotional immaturity on the parents part that I'm so uncomfortable with your, um, like instability, financial instability maybe makes me so I'm so afraid of it that I get caught up in my fear Mm-hmm. And so I can't even think about what you need in the moment because I'm over here having my feelings about it. And I'm kind of like projecting those onto you. Um, how do you see that maybe overlapping or is it, dep- does it depend on like patterns of abuse in the past that she, she's already accustomed to her parents, maybe putting her down a lot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in you know, I could elaborate there in that, in the, the exchange does come with some some put downs um that's pretty in this particular um case that is coming up quite a bit um i think the important piece to to know about narcissism is you know from what we've studied about it 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 stems from you know like a a very uh very traumatic experience in childhood early childhood somewhere around three years old we're guessing. And so what you see is like the emotional immaturity to be, you know, stunted right around three, three to five. Um, And so you'll also see, you know, their moral development is also in that range of um, like early childhood. So based on punishment, avoidance and punishment and, so when you kind of pull all of those pieces together, you start to see the pattern of 
this is an adult and they might even be an adult of many financial resources, but they make decisions like a child. Um, they throw tantrums, but their tantrums don't look like we see like our two-year-old in Target throw um, on the floor over a toy. They throw it over, um, you know, their, uh, their child deviating from the family line. Mm. That's really interesting. And so the immaturity is not just that they're, they're uncomfortable with the emotion. It's also they're lashing out at that point and using mm -hmm. that bullying behavior and really um, like degrading or demeaning their child. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, you know, in a situation where the adult child is possibly going through a layoff, that's embarrassing to the parent, you know, don't tell mm -hmm. anyone yet. Um, you should go ahead and look for a job, like, um, so that you have something and just say that you're, you know, left your job. Don't tell people you got laid off. Like it's, it's a lot of that managing impressions mm -hmm. for the outside world and also making, you know, other people's feelings about themselves. What about, um, I'm also thinking if you can give us an example of, um, like a romantic relationship. So we're talking about adult child, parent child relationships right now. Um, what about when you're working with a potential spouse? Um, well, you know, did you see that a lot? So, um, like kind of a real classic one that comes to mind is, um, you have one partner who, um, you know, it's that they're maybe mother, they're a mother and it's mother's day and they, um, the other partner does not get them a, a mother's day gift or acknowledge it anyway. And so the, the female mother partner, you know, communicates like, you didn't give me a gift. I don't, you know, feel hurt. Um, it feels like you always ignore me. And, you know, your birthday was a couple of months ago and I, I really, uh, you know, I put a lot into your birthday and last year for Father's Day too. Um, and to avoid accountability right away, you know, they're like, uh, what do you mean? I, I didn't get you anything for Mother's Day. I told you happy Mother's Day, um, you know, and um, uh, nobody told you you had to get me a, a big birthday gift mm -hmm. or anything for Father's Day. Um, seems like you're expecting an awful lot, you know, and, and just really turning the tides. I can't even take on that tone. <laughs> I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling to take on that, that, that really, um, that real critical tone. It's such an insidious form of abuse that, um, I find myself hard having a hard time getting into character. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of times you leave the conversation kind of feeling like what just happened. I mm -hmm. went in knowing how I felt and, knowing that I needed to express a, a pain and you leave feeling like somehow that was my fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the example I just gave, right. Um, you know, the, the, the partner that's the mother heading, you know, expressed she's heard about um, being forgotten for mother's day um, is left feeling like, am I expecting too much mm -hmm. to expect like flowers or a card for mother's day? Um, am I, uh, it, it didn't he act like he enjoyed the birthday celebration I put together for him. Um, he really acted like, um, that was expected. And of, 
you know, he would be entitled to that. At the time, you know, you just start to like, you have this, these facts you work from, and then the perception that you've been given um, to, to believe. And it's only when it benefits um, the partner to avoid accountability for a mistake. Okay. Because as you were saying that, I was also kind of thinking, how do you distinguish between narcissistic abuse and, and regular abuse, I guess, like is, is that a term regular abuse, like non-narcissistic abuse? Oh, well, like emotional abuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so emotional abuse has got kind of two components. So there's uh, like the real active narcissistic abuse I described. And the second one is neglect. Um, and neglect is really difficult to flesh out clinically because it's easy for us to point to something that did happen like, um, or something somebody said or did, but it's really hard to point to what you didn't get. Yeah. Um, and so that one's kind of a, a, just a real difficult piece. Um, and these are also both combined really. It's such a nuanced type of abuse. Narcissistic abuse can also include like, you know, physical, sexual, financial abuse as well. So that might look like, you know, limiting access to, access to finances, shared money, shared accounts, um, you know, maybe one partner overspends an awful lot on their individual needs. And then the other, the partner that's, you know, in the, uh, and the um, other side of the power differential experiencing the abuse, they can't afford to buy like, um, you know, clothing that they do need, um, nothing extravagant we're talking about just meeting needs with the narcissistic partner their needs are always met um you know physical harm is often used you know there might be one or two um, physical outbursts that are bad enough to teach the uh, victim what it could possibly happen if they push the envelope again just helps re- remind them to keep themselves in line. How do you guide people through? So, so before you were talking about potentially setting boundaries. Um, so within boundaries, how do you help people decide? I don't know, like what the healthy limits are, because I think you're right. Like as therapists, we want to stay engaged with someone, but that might not be the responsibility of a partner. At some point you might have to say, this is abuse and and I need to leave this, right? Like, but especially when you know someone comes from a place of their own trauma or also there is a lot of manipulation in there, right? So they're also incredibly um, skilled at convincing you to stay. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you help people navigate that when deciding what boundaries need to be in place if the relationship is going to remain or deciding that the boundary needs to be uh, removing yourself. That's a big question. It is. And um, I always like to talk a bit about like the interplay between roles, relationships and boundaries and how these three things work together. Um, And this usually once, once clients can understand that part, they get to, they get really clearly decide and, and, where they need to set boundaries and what's acceptable um, and then what they do have control over. So um, 
the roles that we have in each other's lives um, are guardrailed, is that even a word, Um, by the boundaries of those roles, right? And then the relationship that we have um, in that role can only stay alive if we hold the boundaries, right? Mm. If if we don't have the boundaries in place or we violate them, um, that relationship is already in the process of dying. So the key piece here being helping like the client. So again, I typically work with like the adult children of parents with these traits, um, helping the client use their own values and insight to define what they believe their role needs to be as the adult child in this relationship. Um, so if, you know, um, as our parents age, we often need to do a little bit more caretaking of our parents. Um, you know, we, we do feel often that we have a social responsibility to look out for their well-being, And so if my client feels that that's one of their personal values, they'll need to do something around that to be an in integrity with themselves. So this is really key. Um, so I help them figure out like, okay, so one of my values is I should connect with my family um, for Thanksgiving. That doesn't necessarily mean going and having dinner with them or going and staying in their parents' home mm-hmm. uh, for a whole week to two yeah. weeks um, or the whole holiday season. Um, it does not mean going in and um, they fly in from out of town and then go to the, their parents' house and have to clean the house and cook the entire meal and then be criticized for it afterward. Like that celebrating or acknowledging the holiday with their family can be sending a card or flowers or a phone call. Mm. And so if the value is um, to be in integrity with myself, I need to acknowledge um, my parents' birthday or holidays. That doesn't mean I have to go and take care of all of their feelings, wants, and needs. That might be um, more of their their, like if it's their mother that's the problematic relationship, that may be more of their father's um, responsibilities to take their mom to dinner. Um, and the, but that you could send flowers, right? That might be what you feel like your role is, their child is. Um, and getting back to defining that role more clearly. Now, you're going to have, um, you're going to have some like a, a dust up here, right? When you start changing things. And being able to speak from like your adult self energy, not that a position of inferiority as the child to advocate for your boundaries. That is pretty key. It's one of the hardest things to do to, to develop that courage um, and recognize that, you know, they're, they're going to be unhappy. Things are changing. You're no longer going to be meeting all of their needs, which, you know, wasn't your responsibility to start with, but it's also hard for them to pick up that responsibility for themselves. Um, and you know, sometimes people might act out a lot. Um, and that's usually what we see is, um, they amp up a little bit to try to get, um, their child back in line. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have to be really direct and say things like, you know, I understand that this is difficult for you to hear. And I'm, I'm, I can tell that you're disappointed. I'm not coming for Thanksgiving. Um, and I will definitely, you know, miss seeing you also. 
Uh, also understand if you need some time um, where we're not communicating to process this, right? And even all the way up to, I understand if you don't feel we can be in a relationship together if you can't accept these boundaries I'm setting. You know, you have to, sometimes you have to go all the way and say it that clearly. Yeah, yeah. But you have to leave that decision up to the other person. We can't control them and keep them in our lives. They get to decide if they're going to, you know, um, accept our boundaries. That's that's their part um, and the other side of the boundary. You're also using a lot of parts language, which I love. Um, <laughs> Like being able to speak from your fully from your adult self mm-hmm. and realize that you are an adult speaking with another adult and really um, like soothing. I, I do a lot of work with helping to soothe the younger part of yourself that is really scared to have these conversations and to let let your younger self know this isn't an adult talking to an adult. Um, I had a client the other day that it's like this epiphany came to her because we were doing some of this work because she she was chronically in trouble growing up. She was always in trouble. She just felt like everything she did, she got in trouble for. And she had this like aha moment the other day. And she said, as an adult, I can't get in trouble anymore. I'm an adult now. I cannot get in trouble. And it was just like, to her, that was such a profound moment because she was able to like give herself, like I could visibly see her relax because she was like, even if I get a speeding ticket or something like that, like that's not necessarily getting in trouble. Even if I get up at, written up at work, that's like a, a consequence of something. But she's like, I will never be in trouble with an adult. That was just like such a good feeling for her. Yes. It sounds kind of like um, your client may have been the scapegoat in the family. Mm. Is, do you feel that to be true? Absolutely. Okay. Is there, there is, there is a framework for narcissistic families. So, um, and there's different parts that the kids play. Um, and so one of them is a scapegoat. There's usually, unfortunately, um, the children will be split. If there's two, there's usually a golden child and a scapegoat. If there's more than that, there's some other roles. So you might have like the, the forgotten child, the one that parents were just kind of disinterested in parenting, like, um, after they'd already gotten their golden child and their scapegoat, they kind of forget about them. That child receives a lot of um, uh, neglect. They oh, might be, yeah. they may um, not be given a, enough supervision. They might have a lot of accidents, a lot of injuries, um, just uh, completely disengaged parents. Most of the time with that child, there's also when we call the mascot, which is they're the funny one. Um, yeah. They, they keep people entertained. Mm-hmm. Uh they're kind of the life life of the party a lot of ways. So it does sound like your client that you're describing um, was the scapegoat. So she was told over and over she was the problem and always making the mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe she's figuring out, maybe I wasn't so bad. <laughs> Absolutely. And even hearing you say that, that makes me think of another client. Um, because I think that when you're, you're right, there's a lot of split between the children because if you are the scapegoat and you see another one being the golden child, there's so much resentment, right? Mm-hmm. And those are roles that no, none, none of them ask to be in. Like the golden child doesn't necessarily ask to be or try to be. The funny one doesn't necessarily like the the role that they're playing. Um, but I would imagine that that can grow up into a lot of strained adult sibling relationships as well, because 
I mean, at that point, you've got decades of resentment building and pain. Mm-hmm. Well, and actively, um, the parent actively working against that relationship mm-hmm. building between the siblings by saying, like, why can't you be more like your brother? Mm-hmm. Um, I know, ouch, right? Um, and then that in, in that move is actually kind of clever. They're triangulating the relationship then. They're aligning more with one. Um, and then you see that often a lot of paranoia um, behavior in the narcissistic parent always trying to keep their finger on the pulse, stay in that triangle. Like they want to be the go between there that they want people to come uh, through them um, for relationship to another person Mm -hmm. so that they can control um, how close people can be. Um, They can control perception um, and not just on the outside of the family, but yes, within and between the, the family system, they also don't want, the other parent to be close with the kids. Mm-hmm. And from your experience, do you think that comes from like that's fear-based of if these two people get close, I'll be left out. And so it's all mm-hmm. about, um, again, like thinking about how to preserve yourself. Yes. I, I mean, it's definitely a self, it's a self-serving, <laughs> it's a self-serving behavior. What, I mean, if I'm, if I'm thinking about it, and I want to make sense of it. It looks something like um, they truly believe that people only relate to each other in this um, like one man down position. Like it that they they only know how to relate to people through a narcissistic lens. Mm-hmm. They can't even conceive of the fact that their kids can be close. And that doesn't threaten their relationship yeah. as their mother to them. That yeah. that's a its own special role. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't see roles, relationships, and boundaries. That there are no boundaries. <laughs> they don't understand their role is actually quite special and protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Outside of Session. Remember, while I am a licensed therapist, this podcast is not a substitute for individual therapy. The contents of this episode are for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911 for immediate assistance or dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline.